Before we get started with this episode, we wanted to thank our listeners for your amazing support of this podcast. We can't wait to bring you future episodes, but we need your support. Just go to givebutter.com slash melanated moments to help share more stories of exceptional Black artists with thousands of listeners across the U.S. and around the world. And if you'd like more information on each episode, go to our website or follow us on social media. Follow my foundation on Facebook at Morning Brown or on the web at morningbrown.org. And follow me, Joshua Thompson, on Instagram as Sock Joplin. And welcome back to another episode of Melanated Moments and Classical Music. I'm your co-host, Joshua Thompson. And I'm Angela Brown. Joshua, here we are recording this fabulous podcast. And I don't know about you, but around this time of year, I'm always dreaming of warm weather, bright sunshine, sand between my toes, and the sound of the ocean in my ear. I am right there with you. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> India's cool enough. Yeah, it's real yeah, cool right now. It's oh. listen, real cool because at this time of year, it also finds me wishing I were somewhere on a tropical island. Fortunately, we're going to take a trip today to said tropical island and you don't even need your passport. Uh-uh. I got my bags packed. I'm fuck that. I got my bags packed and everything. <laughs> Where's the music going to take us today, Mr. Joshua? Well, with the help of our very special guest, we're going to a place that is known the world over for tourism, top-notch cuisine, and a style of music known as reggae that has quite literally come to define the island nation. Wait a minute. This is classical music, and we're going to talk about some reggae? Oh, baby, yes, Jamaica, let's do this. I could use a little island vibe today. Indeed, and couldn't we all? And so we're all going to be discussing all things Jamaica this week. And to help Mm -hmm. us do that, we'll be talking to a young man who is quickly becoming one of the most sought after and commissioned composers who happens to hail from Jamaica Mm -hmm. and credits a lot of his creative inspiration from the unsung yet incredibly dynamic Jamaican choral and classical composers. All right now. Well, can we meet him? Come on. (laughs) Yes, in a minute, because you know me. I always insist on providing a little background and social context before (laughs) diving right (laughs) into the music. And this episode will be no different. Boy, would you just come on? I mean, don't take too much time, baby. We trying to feel and hear the sounds of Jamaica. Not you. I get it. I get it. Okay, I'll make it quick. Ish. I've got to be uh, ish because I've got to I've got to be 100 percent honest, you know, outside of references to reggae and pristine beaches and honestly, like the assumed misconceptions most Westerners have of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know as much as I probably should about the country and, and how it is still so globally significant. OK, I'm kind of in the same boat with you, Joshua. So please enlighten us. OK, I, again, I promise I'll try to make it quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and our guests will be able to fill in blanks and correct where maybe I get it wrong. So just a brief overview about the island of Jamaica. It was originally inhabited by the indigenous uh, Taino peoples. 
And it was under Spanish occupation, um, not too after the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1494. During this time, it's colonialism, right? So we know what's going on. It's enslavement, it's disease, it's, you know, mm-hmm. all that type of stuff. And so the folks who are on this island originally and African slaves become laborers. And a few centuries later, in about 1655, England gains control of the island and it becomes one of the the biggest places for the triangular trade. So we don't really see anything other than colonialism until until much later. And it's the British who actually abolished the slave trade in 1807, but not the institution itself. And so this is why you continue to have this continuum, perpetual, perverted trade system between Britain and Europe between the West Indies and North and and South America, as we know. So a lot of the people who consider themselves to be Jamaican Mm -hmm. are are mostly from sub-Saharan African ancestry. However, there's so much more that's going on in there too. Like a lot of them have Asian ancestry, primarily Chinese and Indian and Lebanese and other mixed race. So it really is this like really nice hodgepodge and pot that is there. And for that mm-hmm. reason, it's very multicultural. There's uh, quite a few different languages that are spoken there. And the small nation has such a huge global presence. And okay. we see that in the food and in the music from reggae to ska to rock steady to, to dub and all that other type of stuff. It is quite the vibrant and with it little island for sure. Okay. Well, you know, you always come with the history, Mr. Joshua. And we haven't even met our guests yet. But at all. I thank you for it because I wonder how many folks are aware of the history of the island and how its cultural, economic, and geographical position has helped shape the entire world. Exactly. And to help us fit this whole social, historical, and musical puzzle together, mm-hmm. I want to take the opportunity to welcome the guest of our show. Finally. Girl, please. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, she, he's a gentleman who is just a phenomenal representation of Jamaican influence in classical music for the 21st century. So, please, without further ado, yes. help me welcome Dr. <laughs> Mikhail Johnson. Welcome yes. to Melanated Moments in Classical Music. <laughs> welcome, Dr. Welcome. Joshua and Angela Wagwan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big up Jamaica and everything, yes. Yes, say it again, Jamaica and everything, yes. Big up Jamaica and everything. So excited to have you. (laughs) Yes, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. We are very happy to have you. So let's kind of just kind of get right into all of it. Uh, Now, Angela, I actually had a wonderful opportunity to meet Dr. Johnson Back in October of last year, I was doing a residency with the University of Puget Sound's uh, School of Music in Tacoma, Mm -hmm. Washington, and met this fantastic and brilliant young man who has a million-watt smile that just lights up a room, and we became- Oh, I could see it. Yes, we became fast friends, and just, uh, I started learning and and reviewing his music, and was just like, "Ah, okay, we got to get him on the show. Got to get him on the show. And here he is. So- Dr. Johnson, tell us how this all starts. How? What was your introduction into music? And you know, what's been the trajectory of this incredible career that you've got going? Okay, it's it's really a long story, but I tried to make it short. Um, it started when I was four years old. My mom actually was the one who discovered me uh, liking music because she would normally have 
the TV on that would have a program on a specific time on Sunday afternoon. And she'd be busy cleaning the house and preparing it for the week. And uh, this week, she was just not in the mood for any classical music. She's like, nah, we need something else. And she changed the channel and I started to cry. Uh, <laughs> unbeknownst to her, she she thought it was a fluke because oh. she was wondering, you know, if this really was a thing. So she kind of tested it a little bit and she realized that this was really true. And so she eventually took piano lessons to have me around the instrument. And so by the time I was age six, I think I got my first keyboard. And by 10, I was playing for churches because I was learning by air. At that time, I was just listening and kind of figuring things out. That was from the church services. You know, they were playing the hymns and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And I actually figured things out by air. So as things progressed, mm-hmm. um, I, I eventually liked classical music a lot, but I was trying to learn the stuff by ear. And I was like, you know what? I'm getting tired. I'm trying to figure out how could I learn to, to read music. And it, eventually I put my science brain to work because I was a science nerd oh. and, um, and kind of found a way around it. Um, while I took piano lessons, um, not piano lessons, but I took music classes in school, but I was learning one staff, which was a treble staff, which was a recorder. Uh-huh. So you're just like, okay, if this is how you learn treble, we have another blurred here. Right? So if you so if you do learn treble here, how do you learn bass? And you know, that's how I kind of like put mm-hmm. the pieces together. But as it morphed, this aspect of when I got to high school and we we're doing these SAT equivalent exams for music, there was a requirement that mm-hmm. asked us to compose three contrasting pieces. And that was almost like my foray into into composition. But I, I thought no. I thought maybe prior to that, because I was improvising a lot, I never uh-huh. saw the relationship between the two. It was just a matter of me knowing how to write down the things rather than me just conjuring these ideas in my head prior. So I never made the relationship before in terms of me improvising, learning stuff by air and being able to write this stuff down. So I never really thought of compos- composing as a, as a full-time thing. I was just like, let me just meet the requirements and, and keep it pushing. Um, but it was not until I got to college when my mentor, uh, Andrew Marshall, because I actually went there specifically for the music, but I was a, I was still a science major then, but he took me under his wing and he was an amazing choral arranger and composer. And, you know, he was the one who transformed my thought of actually becoming a composer because I took some lessons with him. And uh, there was this one project when he said, you know, I want you to create a patriotic song and i created the anthem of independence Mm. and he was like oh i really like what you've done um if you could tweak this here and this here we would like to actually premiere it and that was my first opened eye experience as to oh my god i'm actually getting a piece performed i'm actually think thought of as being a composer and you know this and that so you know it was quite a a journey there and i never looked back since and i was mostly a choral composer uh, that time until I got to Bowling Green, 14. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, if I wanted to do music in terms of like a comp- composition, I wanted to go on mm-hmm. the far end of the spectrum, meaning that I wanted okay. to go into like the, the very dissonant, just because I was very much entrenched into the, the consonant world while I was in Jamaica. Um, I was like, I would want the, bo- bo- the, you know, the end of the spectrum to kind of mix the two. I want to read what I found as your artist statement. And as a pianist and composer, you said, I seek to create a conduit that allows classical concert music to be more inviting to a public who believes this music is not meant 
for them. If classical music is to be equitable, I must be intentional in my role. Through my contribution, I hope these diasporic and luminous works will assist in dismantling the construct of the canon and instill a tradition of discovery through programming. As a composer, my work merges the realms of tonality and atonality with the implementation of extended techniques to enhance my artistic narrative, which is firmly rooted in rhythms, drumming, and folk songs of my native Jamaica. Hmm. So you just told us that one of your first pieces was, I'm going to mispronounce this, <laughs> Zamaka, is that right? Well, actually, this was uh, this was um, I would say quite like my my third or fourth piece. So this was like oh. much. This was much later. This was my almost my introduction into instrumental works. So oh. this was this was me like branching out into like okay, I'm done with not necessarily done with choral, but I wanted to really now enter into the realm of instruments. Now that I was at school. Um, mm-hmm and had the resources to write for instruments because I knew that they were going to be played eventually. So um, this was when I was at Texas Tech um, University in 2017. And I was just like, well, the pandemic hit during 2020. So this was very recent, a very recent composition. Let's take a listen to it. I think this is a a perfect setup for that. And we can come back and talk about that, that pull and that cultural root influence from Jamaica. But I will probably mispronounce it as well. But this is your... Jamaica fanfare. So let's let's take a listen.
Oh, man. Mm. Mm. Bravo. Bravo. Yeah. Angela, your thoughts. Thank you so much. Yes. I mean, it was very boombastic. It was, I mean, you felt like you was going somewhere with that. It was like, <laughs> come on, Karen. Let's march on. Let's be, you know, strong. Absolutely. And as you could tell, as you could tell, that was a very new style for me in the sense that um, compared to when I was exclusively a choral composer from, you know, 2005, 20, up to 2010, 2014, uh, I was exclusively choral music. And so me entering into the realm of instrumental works, you would have heard a totally different musical language. And so I'm very happy to kind of hear this in this context. Um, it's been a while since I've heard this piece. So it's, um, it's nice to kind of hear it in this, in this context to just talk about my transition into writing for instruments. Yeah, and it's it, it really is. It gives you all that. I think it's a great introduction to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. It, it gives this really, again, is that pomp and circumstance that is absolutely owed to commemorate, you know, Jamaican Independence Day from British rule in 1962. You, you mentioned something about composition being a language, and it's not something that I'm very familiar with, but there is such a nuance and such a distinct set of languages amongst the Jamaican people. And there is and there is a piece that we're going to get to here in a second. I know you're excited to talk about. But briefly, Dr. Johnson, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what that distinct dialect in Jamaica is, if I believe it's, it's patois, and how language is really a huge influence on you and how you construct, create, and compose your pieces? Okay, so when it comes on to Jamaican patois, which you know, is an amalgamation of a lot of things, uh, which is deeply rooted in English to an extent, but it infuses a lot of languages such as Portuguese, Spanish, a lot of the African languages and nuances. And so there's Dutch, French, there are so many of them that's infused in it. And surprisingly, we talk about this idea of, of language being the root of that when for so long we've been taught that this is bad speaking and if we're not speaking the queen's english mm -hmm. then it's not a proper thing and we've just gotten a chance to come around and really accept the language for what it is which is our identity mm -hmm. and so right. when i talk in my uh, artistic statement about music being equitable and me using my language for me it's not a matter of just trying to do something that's novel for me it's about preservation for me, it's about perpetuation of a mm -hmm. cultural heritage, which could otherwise be lost if we do not find a way to catalog and make it concrete in form in a, some form of writing. And if we look around in the classical realm, uh, when we talk about this idea of equitability, people have music that they can identify with. Bach with German, Debussy with French, um, Rachmaninoff um, et al. with, you know, Russian. Mm -hmm. They're speaking and they're writing in the language that that you know translates to their audience and so with that being said you'll start to realize that the language that they speak in and of itself is very rhythmic and that's what informs their rhythmic sensibilities mm -hmm. and so they're able to identify with that as well so why not translate that for jamaicans as well so that they have something to identify with that's right and i realized that they they have not gravitated towards classical music more so because they would want to sit down and listen to Bach and Mozart and Beethoven when they have no identity with that kind of musical language or with that kind of person or with that kind of culture. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, 
I've really been grateful to have comments, of, you know, when people say, you know, I don't listen to classical music like that, but I definitely listen to this. And it's because they're hearing themselves being represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so through that, they'll be willing to sit and listen to the Bach and the Debussy eventually because they know that they have something for themselves. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this sounds like a good opportunity to listen to an example of language and dialect as a central focus of one of your pieces, Dutty Tough. Dr. Johnson, before we listen, can you tell us a little bit about this piece? Okay, so this piece is uh, Dutty Tough. Uh, It's coming from a song cycle called Jamaican Plight, which speaks about the onset of emigration from Jamaica to the United States or to England at the time um, of the 50s and 60s. And this was, the text is from a prominent Jamaican poet who I dearly admire and, you know, God rest her soul. Her name is Louise Bennett Coverley, and she was one of the premier folklorists and you know broadcasters and poets of our time and she was the one of the first persons to actually write poetry or any literature in the Jamaican dialect and this gave a clear picture internationally as to what Jamaica was like mm. uh, so vividly in the 50s and 60s and so uh, Dutty Tough is basically speaking about economic hardship because the it's, it's from a proverb which says rain a fall but Dutty Tough the rain is falling, but the earth is still hard. Mm. And so it's almost like this idea of you're trying to penetrate this ground, but it's, it's like as soon as the, the rain drizzles on the earth, it still gets absorbed like nothing happened. And so we're going through this, you know, time when you're hearing someone kind of like ranting about the, the stress that they're going through, the, the, um, the turmoil of just trying to survive and make ends meet. So it says, uh, Sun a shine, but things not bright. Though pot a boil, bickle enough. River flood, but water scarce. Rain a fall, but dirty tough. Which means the sun is shining, but things aren't bright. Though food is on the pot boiling, it's not enough. The river floods, but water is scarce. The rain falls, but the dirt is still tough. Hope you enjoy.
Dr. Johnson, this is, I, I really like this and I appreciate the background that you've given us on this because what you compose is a brilliant set of tension with almost no release that perfectly mirrors this, uh, that folk adage that you were talking about, you know, with, with Duddy Tough. It's, uh, it made it a whole lot, I want to say easier, but I understood the proverb. And it made sense. And I understood why that tension was there without that release. This was this was this was incredible. Yeah, thank you so much. And the idea of me using inside of the piano to evoke this, it's almost a visual as much as it was an oral effect, in the sense that I'm literally hitting the strings as a metaphorical example of me hitting the ground, and the sound is like the dust that comes up from the air, like you're trying to break through. And it's just no form of getting beyond. Yeah, and, and you're actually plucking the inside. I was wondering about that. Are you, are, are you plucking the insides of the other strings? Yes, I was plucking the strings as well. Wow. Yes, and that was, and those are like the instances of when you you feel breakthrough is in sight, but then it's short lived. Or as we say in America, uh, traveling without moving or running around in circles. Right. That, that's that's a, that's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, I think we have one more, Auntie yeah. Angela. If you can, yeah, yeah. Before we sign off, can you set up the backstory behind another of your pieces called "What You Hiding"? <laughs> what You Hiding was um, a fabulous commission by Bowling Green State University, my alma mater. And um, my dear friend Abigail wanted me to write a piece that was a way of introducing young um, pre-college students uh, or early collegiate students into contemporary music. And one way to do that was to find similarities between the classical music that they've known for so long in the repertoire and find techniques that are similar to that in and put that in the modern context. So Haydn being, you know, one of the greatest composers in the classical era, um, I just took a fragment of that and said, what would Haydn do? And I just decided to rely on, you know, the humor of Haydn and the patterns in that and, and create not only this 
kind of parody of like Mozart towards Salieri, you know, because, you know, Mozart and Salieri mm-hmm. had this little, you know, riff for me to say, uh, hey, Haydn, look what I can do. So watch a Haydn is like saying, look here, Haydn, watch here, Haydn. Look what I can do. And also, it also means what are you hiding, which is the journey of hide and seek. So these these ideas kind of return as though you're kind of going through this maze of looking for something. And then eventually I put the quote of Haydn, which the whole piece is based on mm-hmm. at the end, which mm-hmm. shows you that eventually when you find this object that you're looking for, the, you, the euphoria eventually just dissipates, you know, after all this tension really quickly. And I got to say, it's a fun, it's eclectic and a little quirky and innovative piece in my opinion, but it's, it's, it's stunning. So let's, let's take a quick listen.
that was an incredible piece. I mean, it was all over the place, but in a good way. I can imagine it tasting like a good Jamaican stew. <laughs> so true. Mm, like, yeah. there's so much virtuosity, like complexity in the modern stylings, but uh, never far removed from that very structured compositional style of, of Haydn. So I think the piece is fantastic. Dr. Johnson... Thank you so much. <laughs> insane, insane levels of composition here. And it's been absolutely exciting and, and truly inspiring to have you uh, on our show today. Yes, yes. You gave us sight, sounds, and the soul of the Jamaican island and graciously provided your unique perspective on classical music and increasing equity and accessibility in the genre. We certainly say thank you for expanding our horizons today. Uh, thank you. And I, and I do hope that, um, you know, this is a horizon that I, I, I feel other composers um, that hear me would be able to, to delve into and, and, and enjoy. And also for people in the, on the island um, would also be inspired by my work and, and would seek to pursue music and, and composition in perpetuating this cultural heritage as well. Absolutely. And hopefully today's episode has effectively and inspirationally filled everyone with that island vibe. So until next time, I'm Joshua Thompson. And I'm Angela Brown. And And this this has has been Melanated Melanated Moments Moments in Classical Music. Melanated Moments in Classical Music is a production of Classical Music Indie. Our producers are Ezra Baker Trupiano and Adam Fanassier. Our theme music was composed by Laura Carpenter. Melanated Moments in Classical Music is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, and the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency. Additional support comes from the Indie Arts Council and the city of Indianapolis. Our podcast partners are Morning Brown Incorporated and Symphony Tacoma. 